1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. And the Lord is honored when we stand for the reading of his word. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The word of the living God. Please be seated. Morning, congregation. Been kind of humbling, actually, to... uh be one of the scripture readers uh, through the uh, book of Genesis because uh, I don't know about anyone else, but when I uh, have to read, one of the first things I'm doing is looking for the Hebrew words, um, knowing that I get tripped up very easily on that. So um, it's quite refreshing to only have uh, one verse to read today. Um, But uh, we're actually going to be this morning going through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 with the focus, the point where we're going to be eventually landing on, being 13 and 12. So um, today, with the Lord's help, I want to go through three main points from the text, these three points being a helpful aid in understanding what these passages mean and how we ought to live in response. First, we're going to establish that the text is about love. Second, we're going to realize a distinction that Paul makes between that which is temporal, meaning temporary, uh, versus that which is eternal. Uh, And third, we're going to land on chapter 13, verse 12, where we will spend the remainder of our time discussing the Visio Dei. So my prayer this morning is that as we work through these scriptures, we're not only challenged but renewed in our faith for the things of God has purposed understanding that sin has left us in a state of blindness. And while God has undertaken to reveal himself uh, to us for us to see, we still await a day when beholding him will be clear, and that given this truth, we are propelled all the more to walk in the grace freely given by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So uh, the first thing we want to establish is that this is about love. So... Um, It's not hard for me, personally, to imagine that around the time of Valentine's Day, you might have sermons being preached on this text. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is, in fact, known as the love chapter, Um, and it's one of those things that Sean noticed immediately when I told him what text I was preaching from. Um, And so the odds are, if a sermon has a text in this chapter, uh, the topic is going to be about love. Paul's letter to the Corinthians at this point wasn't constructed, though, for husbands and boyfriends to have something to put on uh, Facebook uh, with regards to uh, the topic about love. Um, And under the subject of love, he isn't even narrowing his focus on the interpersonal relationships between a man and a woman uh, in the romantic sense. Rather, he is speaking to the action of love that is to be pursued by the church in Corinth. And so to understand this text, we have to reconcile that this is indeed about love. His call is for them to love each other, a call that was very well needed. It's a very well needed exhortation in light of the feuds and decisiveness that were going on during the time uh, of Paul's letter. His concern isn't that they would would merely get along for the sake of unity in and of itself. He doesn't want them to get along so that he wouldn't receive letters of their bickering like little children. Uh, Rather, there was and still is a central objective that was to be displayed among them. 
If we recall Jesus' words in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, we understand that Jesus' words in John were not given to that particular context in and of itself or alone, but that the audience would uh, be to anyone uh, throughout time and throughout history who would bear the name of Christ, that their mark would, of discipleship um, would be that they were followers of Christ and by extension would reveal themselves to be children of God, people who would have redeemed hearts that would endure and, and endeavor to honor and glorify God. The mark that would make them distinct among everyone else is that they would be in love with one another, that they would show love, that they would express love. And so Paul's motivation in calling them to love was that they would be faithful to one another and in turn in their faithfulness to one another show their faithfulness to God. One thing that seems true, at least for me, about Thanksgiving is that we have so much leftovers that you can basically eat, right, for the next week or so. Um, we, we just finished coming at the heels of Thanksgiving, and um, I'm sure many of us celebrated with our friends and our family. Uh, very joyous time. Um, one thing that's kind of hard for me to imagine is being at a table and being at a table in front of family and friends and just basically being at odds with one another. Being in a place of tension, being in a place of strife and, and discord, you know? Uh, you'd figure the only attacking that would be done is the plate in front of you, right? Um, so while that's true, right, it, while we can reconcile in our hearts and our minds that, you know, Thanksgiving ought to be the spirit of being in gratitude and the spirit of, of being in, in, in thanks and, and just being striving for peace, we also see that the same thing should be true about the church as well. Why? Because love in the church has to be on display. Because God is love. And since we are children of God, it follows that we must also be loving towards one another. These passages about love are really the core of understanding everything else in this passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The text in Hebrews becomes relevant under the subject of the visio Dei, the vision of God. The text clearly says that unless you strive for peace and holiness, you will not see God. This will become more clear as we go further, but it is important to state at this point that there is an essential function that love has, and Paul is clearly looking to express its importance. And so before we continue, the question becomes, what is love? What is love? Now, I understand that in today's world, we have definitions for things that completely missed the point of what they originally were intended to mean. Many times you can have discussions with another person and you might have actually spend a good chunk of time redefining your terms, coming to an understanding that you both agree on what a certain word means in order for you to actually have a faithful and true 
uh, communication where one is understanding another and vice versa. And so it, it's not necessarily a stupid question to ask what is love based on our current context, but Paul in his day doesn't seem to consider it a stupid question either because he answers that question. We see that in verse 4, chapter 13. Love is patient and, it, and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. To be faithful in love, to truly love another person, not just in word, but in deed and in all truth, we have to reconcile that these things, these criteria, need to be exhibited. And the fact of the matter is, if we're honest, the task can be seriously daunting. I'm sure that we can all say, even with truly the ones that we love, that we've missed a mark on some of these qualifiers, especially with ones that we've loved in the church. Now, this isn't to beat ourselves over the head, but to realize that to obey God in loving one another is no simple matter. Many times we look to make excuses on why we're not being fully intentional and committed to loving one another, that in the process we ultimately end up deceiving ourselves. The verse we just read in Hebrews warns us not to fail to obtain the grace of God by allowing bitterness to spring up. Having verse 4 through 7 as a standard by which we direct our actions and thoughts, we must strive all the more to exhibit love amongst one another. To love is an essential trait of a member of the body of Christ, and there is no getting away from that. It is essential because we are called to obey the Lord in all that he commands us, and he has indeed commanded us to be loving. It is also essential because what Paul is addressing in the context, in the context outside of chapter 13, in chap chapter 12, he is discussing the role of gifts in the church and basically exhorting the church in Corinth not to esteem worth on the basis of some people's gifts over others. He reasons that, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Paul doesn't want them to be uninformed about the nature of spiritual gifts in the church. Rather, he wants them to understand that just as a body has parts that function in unity, so the body of Christ is constructed. The aim is that there not be any division over differences, but recognition that the differences are to function in a unity that is necessary for the body to operate. Church, this is about love. It begins to come clear when we follow his argument into chapter 13, because right before he does that, he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. The clarity as it is becoming into focus is that love is the still more excellent way. Even though he calls him to desire the higher gifts, there is still a more excellent way. 
it appears apparent what seems to be the fuel, the driving force behind the unity of the body is love. He emphasizes this by stating that he could speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and yet if he had no love, he is but a noisy gong. All the prophetic powers and faith to move mountains without love amounts to absolutely nothing. And so the proper usage or handling of the spiritual gifts is that they would be used and handled with love. They are to be handled with love because their source is from God, and he is the one who has designated their purpose and their function. John Piper says that you can tell what a person loves by what he devotes himself to the most. When we look and see what God loves, we see that it is his glory that he loves. Creation was established not simply so that we would enjoy it without regard for God and in any way that we seem right before our eyes. No, creation was established so that it would glorify God. We as creatures created by God were made to glorify him. We're not wired, nor is the established order of things settled for us to find lasting pleasure or happiness outside of the mold that God has created. We were created for his glory. We find true satisfaction when we glorify him. We glorify him when we display ourselves as his image bearers, a people who take after their creator and display love toward one another. It must be said that loving God and loving his body with our gifts necessitates attendance. Presence, not only do we have to be active and contributing members of the body by being physically present, but we also must be mentally and spiritually present, willing and able contributors, not just subject to hold the place in the pews, but understanding that love as we are talking about all morning, does not insist in its own way. The beauty of corporate worship, as Pastor Chris was speaking about, is that it is the cooperation of all of God's children in the act of worship unto God. Not irritable or resentful, but in full yielding and submission unto God, considering others greater than ourselves. And not by our presence, merely. Is there a brother or sister in the church that you perhaps may have an issue with? Better fix that. But it's so hard. I know. Matthew chapter 5 verse 23 says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. But we could say, oh, it's so hard. I know. This is how God has ordained for us to function as a body. This is how we love each other. This is about love. Strive for peace with everyone 
and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We continue on to verse 8 where we see Paul continue his argument about the importance of love by stating that love never ends. Love never ends. Now, if you sit back and you think about it, how many things can you think of that actually have an end? All right? Things that are temporal, meaning temporary. And how many things can, can you think of that actually have no end? Paul makes a contrast to further his point about love and the necessity of love in promoting our standing with God. He says that love does not end. Love is to be pursued because it is eternal. Prophecies, they will pass away. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge, it too will pass away. In essence, what Paul is saying is that the more excellent way is love because it never ends. It never fails. We are to pursue it with the understanding that it is eternal, flowing directly from God. Why is this so? He indicates this because the gifts that are commissioned to us and given unto us for the, the worship and the building up of the body are for the imperfect. They are tools to aid us in our inability to perceive and to realize. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Chapter 13, verse 9. Understanding that the state of the world as it is is not what it should be should enable us to realize that the world as it is is moving to an intended purpose that has been ordained by God. What I mean is that there is a direction that time is flowing to, an end or intended destination that whether we realize it or not, we are marching toward. Paul speaks of the temple passing away when the perfect comes. A moment in the near future when the partial, the limited viewing and understanding of God will pass away. He expresses this by comparing it to childhood and adulthood. How as a child he thought as a child and spoke as a child and reasoned as a child. But when he became an adult, he put away childish things. Stating that with maturity comes better thinking, better speaking, better reasoning. And as a result, he is willing to put away those childish things for something supremely better. Maturity. Clarity. This better thing is what verse 12 highlights. It highlights and defines a moment when rather than having our limited viewing or understanding of God, we will no longer see him like we view our reflection in the mirror dimly, but face to face will we behold our God, knowing him as we are known. If you have an ESV study Bible at this point, you, you, you know, that you get when you become a member of the church, tag, <laughs> you will notice that in the notes section, it describes the condition of the mirrors of those days. The mirrors were not made of glass as we have them today, but were made of a polished metal. And so the reflection that it gave off wasn't one that was sharp, wasn't one that made certain things distinct. What is helpful for me to understand this is that, you know, you go into the bathroom and, you know, you put the hot water on, you close the door, your mirror fogs up. 
If you walk up close, you can see that there's an image. There is a reflection coming back at you, but you can't make out distinct and certain features. What Paul is saying is that our knowledge of God now is like looking at that fogged up mirror. Sure, we know that God exists and a great deal more about who he is. But the degree for which we will see him and know him will be so sharp, so acute, so clear that it will render our current understanding as completely obsolete. The visio day or beatific vision is when we will see God face to face. So the question becomes, what does that mean? So at the risk of the sounding redundant, it's important to clearly state that sin, for sure, has clouded our vision of God. We don't even notice his workmanship in the created order without the Holy Spirit. And the more we look into this, the more we realize how jacked up our vision truly is. We simply don't see or know the way we should. Prior to becoming saved, that vision is even worse. But at the moment of salvation, we can all say that our vision has improved, meaning that we see God and know God. It is not to where it ought to be, though. And the beauty of the visio day, the vision of God, is that we will behold God as he is. Knowing him in truth, seeing him clearly, and as it is described, seeing him face to face and knowing him as we are known. But what does it all mean? Many years ago, as I was studying the Beatitudes in Matthew and the blessed sayings there, uh, some commentators took to explaining uh, the Beatitudes as happy statements. And so the way it is explained and taught by some that happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And, And instead of blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, it would be rendered happy are the meek for they shall inherit uh, the kingdom of God, and so on and so forth. Now, while there is truth to the fact that happiness accompanies the results of those saying, it definitely misses the mark. In the Old Testament, we have the ironic blessing, which is found in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 and 36. And it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In this passage, blessedness is described as being kept by the Lord, given peace and for his face to shine upon you as a gracious act. If we understand that this is what blessing entails, then it is a far cry above what happiness means. Blessedness means that being in a state of communion with God, we get to enjoy all of the benefits that result as a, a result of that union. If we understand that this, then we consider the beatific vision. We understand that the vision isn't that it isn't merely a sight to behold, but rather it is like an unveiling a full and true and clear, gracious revelation of God to his creatures, which in turn promotes within the creature, that person or people, a state of blessedness because that person is in communion with God. 
and all the benefits that flow from that, which includes happiness for sure, are clear and sure to follow. And so what is the beatific vision? It is the true and clear apprehension of God. And so what we need to remember is as individuals who are saved, people who attend church, we don't merely attend and we don't merely come to church for the benefits that we believe we receive. But we come to church and we worship and we praise God for the fact that we are redeemed because we get God. We get God. It isn't merely his gifts or the promise of, of a good life that we receive. As a matter of fact, that's not promised. At the end of the day, it is the presence of the creator of all things, the communion that we have with him that fills our hearts with joy as we worship and as we hear the word preached and teached. It is God that we get. But the question remains, can we see God? This vision that I'm referring to isn't a vision that can be described as a viewing using the bodily function of the eyes. And so we should definitely be clear about that. We understand that God cannot be seen with our bodily eyes because his nature is spirit. When the scriptures refer to God, we see that it looks like invisibility is among the essential and immutable properties of God. But can we really say that God cannot be seen? I mean, after all, there are places in the Old Testament where men have seemingly seen God. One of those places is Genesis chapter 32, 30, as we just uh, heard Pastor Chris preach on. Um, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. In Numbers 12, 8, in the NIV, it's, the text is rendered, With him I speak face to face, clearly not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Scripture also seems to anticipate a time when men would behold God. In Job chapter 19, verse 26, Job seems sure that he would see God. And the text reads, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Amen. Psalms 17:15 says that, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. We even have the promise in Matthew 5, 8 that says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There is a wonderful anticipation of seeing God mixed with what it seems to be a tension that God is an unapproachable light. Yet we see Jesus making the Father known. Moses being one with whom God says he speaks face to face with, but Moses also being one of those who God would not reveal his face for, it would kill him. We see also various texts of scripture pointing to God's in invisibility and man's inability to see God, yet God all the more endeavoring to be seen and to be known. One thing that we have to point out is that God is not seen 
with a comprehensive vision. However seeing God functions, we know that we, we cannot see God in a comprehensive fashion. What does that mean? If we consider that God is eternal and vast and infinite and that we are finite, then logically it would follow that we wouldn't be able to contain the knowledge of an infinite God in a finite being like ours. And so however we see God, we will not gain a comprehensive understanding of God with our sight of him. And so how then will God be seen? Scripture does not clearly say how we can see God, if not with our eyes, but it seems to suggest and point to that to see God entails a rather intuitive and an intellectual perception rather than one that is of just merely the physical eyes. This means that whatever our glorified bodies will be, we will not behold God with our eyes. And so to sort of reconcile this and understand this, it's important to ask a specific question, um, and that is, how has God made himself known? How has God revealed himself in the past? We see that in all creation, it is a theater that displays the glory of God. We see that in the days of old, uh, commissioned men called prophets speak as his messengers. Through the progressive interaction with Israel and all mankind, God has revealed even more and more of his nature. Hebrews 1 states that in these last days he has chosen to speak to us through his Son, whom is expressed image of the Father. John 1.18 established that no one has seen God any time but the Son, and he has come to make him known. Jesus lives a perfect life, he dies, and he is risen. He commissions apostles to carry on the work of spreading the good news of the kingdom, and through them completes the canon of Scripture so that God's revelation is secure for future people who are blessed because they have not seen, yet they believe. Amen. Belief and action are tied together as the Bible presents true hearing with being or doing what is heard. Therefore, knowing God, knowing God as he has revealed himself, comes with the action of becoming all that he has purposed for us to become. John chapter 17 verse 3 says that, the, that eternal life is knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ. This is contrasted with the false knowledge of God in Matthew 7, 3, where it is said that the worker of lawlessness, while he appears to know God, is not sharing in that knowledge of God where it is reciprocated by God. The response, I never knew you, doesn't mean that God is not aware that the person exists, but rather that as a biblical knowledge goes, there is no intimacy, no communion between the worker and God. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I ask. I have set the Lord always before me, the psalmist says in Psalm 16.8. And so what we can reconcile from these scriptures and more is that beholding the Lord is setting his ways before us and determining to obey and to follow him. To know him and to know his ways is the mark and the call of every true Christian. Now all that to say that in the coming future, when this eschatological event takes place, 
We are said to be transformed by the beholding of God in a manner that is unparalleled with our current experience. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that the very gospel, the Holy Spirit that has pierced your heart, that has changed your heart, that has promoted you and propelled you to not only live the gospel but to preach it, is going to be experienced by something even more profound than that? By the beholding of his face? Is this not a delight? Is this not a sight for us to see? Is this not something that is what our hope is founded on and based on? That the very God that we desire, that we should mourn because we don't see him as clearly as we do, that it seems at times that our sin gets in the way of, of honoring him and, and, and obeying him, that there will be a day when none of that matters, when all of that is passed away, that there will be a moment when you will know God even as you are known. It is why Paul says that now we look through a mirror dimly, but soon we will see him clearly. We will see him immediately. And that is to say that it is without any mediated means. We won't have to look at scripture to know God or to see him there because we will know him as we are known. With a knowledge that is certain and with a knowledge that is true. It is true that the Muslim God cannot be loved or perfect and that he needs nothing because he is only one. He doesn't have any other persons with whom he can love. The triune God is perfect and is complete in and of himself and, that, and all that he does because he doesn't need man or any creature to show love. But that the love that is expressed between the persons of the, of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, is a perfect love that they have with each other in eternity past. The great hope of the Christian life is that one day we will be in communion with that perfect love, a fellowship and a love in its fullness that is unspeakable and inexhaustible. It will be eternal. This is why I believe Paul uses this example to cement in the Corinthian church the importance of love. God is love, and to share with him in the intimacy of knowing and being known, we must also love and therefore show that we are indeed his and that he is ours. The absence of love reflects the absence of godliness. Let me say that again, because not enough people were squirming. The absence of love reflects the absence of godliness. No one abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The truth is that we become what we behold. As image bearers, we are tasked with displaying the, the glory of God. And that goes hand in hand with the desire to know God. The less and less of God that we know, the dimmer and dimmer the reflection of his glory will be shown in us. It then follows that to behold God with the purpose of enjoying him and reflecting his image is to receive within ourselves as much as we can possibly take of the knowledge of who he is. The church, therefore, 
does not become an event which, which you sit through, but one that you participate in with love. And in the love of God, right? And in love with the body, to the glory of God. God is glorified, and the word goes before us. The word of God doesn't become a chore to read, but an intimate courtship between two lovers, where the only thing that matters is that you learn more about your love. That lover being God is not the kind of date that, you know, if I may say so, uh, does all the talking. As you read and learn more about God, you learn more and more about yourself. The knowledge learned through the time and the word becomes the fuel for faithful and consistent prayer, where rather than, rather than to bombard God with our wish list, we consider our prayer to be moments in where we can retreat into his presence, more often than not because it is in his presence that there is an excellent sweetness and experience that we get to receive, being in communion and in fellowship with God, a wonderful rest that accompanies his presence. We don't learn the Bible verses by heart to seem all smart and stuff, but rather to commit to the relationship with God and to set his ways before us. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This, ladies and gentlemen, is what the gospel has won for us. Not only do we get to have communion with God now, but we move on from this onto a level that cannot be described. A blessedness that is beyond measure. We get God. We get God. The shadow having passed, only revealing an eternal love with God and in God and with each other. This is what Jesus died for, so that we might be reconciled to God for the hope of enjoying him, so that by being reconciled unto God, we might be enabled by his spirit to love others. God has determined that those who would not enjoy that blessedness will be the ones who reject Jesus. And in their rejection, they would reveal themselves to not be his children, but to be workers of lawlessness. And in God's kingdom, the wages of sin is death, and an eternal death at that. Will you choose love today? Will you choose to love your brothers and sisters today? Will you desire to see God and to behold an infinite beauty? Choose to believe in the message of the gospel. Determine to follow Christ so that you might find God now and in the future even all the more clear. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Our gratitude is always for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us in a real and tangible way. A way so much so, Lord, that it has stopped us from our patterns of sin and disobedience and moved us along onto a course that ultimately looks to glorify you as much as possible. We thank you for this revelation, Lord. We, we thank you for the change that we have, Lord. But we also, Lord, anticipate a day 
where we will behold you face to face. A day when we will be filled and full of all that is good, of all that is you. And in that, receive a satisfaction that is beyond measure. Oh, Lord, we can't wait for that day. We can't wait for the day, Lord, when we get to see you as you are. To enjoy the relationship and fellowship that we have now in a manner and a degree that is beyond our comprehension or understanding. As much as we can't wait for that day, we, we thank you, O oh God, because we know that you are marching us toward that day. And that while today is today, there is a work to be done even now. And so, Lord, let us be propelled, Lord, to all the more preach and to live this gospel so that we might not only display love unto our brothers and sisters, but in an act of love, share the gospel with those who do not have and do not know you. May we be encouraged, O oh Lord, to continue to worship you, Lord, in spite of the many things that we see, knowing that true and wonderful and ultimate beauty is in beholding your face. May we be encouraged and propelled to always behold you in the scriptures throughout the week and in prayer communion with you. We thank you, O oh Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.